welcome to Sound Advice. I'm Kaylee Brew. And I'm Adam Elmer, and we're both music education majors at the University of North Texas. Both of us are really interested in marching band related topics, so today we're going to be investigating the financial side of what it takes to compete in Bands of America competition, something that unites a lot of band directors and music educators across the nation. So first, I think we should probably lay some groundwork. So Bands of America, or it's commonly referred to as BOA, that's what we're going to refer to it as. Um, BOA-related competitions are a smaller facet of a bigger organization, and that's Music for All, which is a very encompassing organization for music education. So the typical BOA competitive season consists of a regional, a super regional, and a grand nationals competition that shows off some of the best bands across the nation. So for a high schooler and marching band, like this is it, this is the big stage. And you get to see some really incredibly skilled pageantry performers and of course the illustrious programs that teach them. So there are big names like Eldie Bell and Avon and Marian Catholic and so on. And a lot of these participating schools are from Texas, you know, the alleged football capital of the world. But since this is a national competition, you get to see just amazing bands from across other regions as well. Yeah, and these competitions are a really big deal to the performers and the directors who all flock there especially. Mm -hmm. yeah. BOA competing bands are constantly at work um, in what can be a very grueling process. And we in the music ed world often hear a lot about how intense the competition is mm -hmm. and just how educationally difficult a task like making it to Grand Nats can be. But we don't really hear much about what this about what this whole thing means financially which is a shame because while you're seeing the rich pedagogical and design history you're also seeing a bunch of numbers and dollar signs that don't really get talked about much today we're going to hopefully bring those numbers to light oh yeah absolutely so <clears throat> some of the really big uniting factors for a lot of finalist bands are obviously you know size and budget and when i was looking at recent finalists so like in the past 10 years um, I found names like Dobbins Bennett and Tennessee and Vandergrift in Texas. When I was looking into them, I saw their high school enrollment numbers, so like student population, in the range of lower to upper 2000s, so around, floating around that like range. Um, there were obviously some exceptions, so Tarpon Springs in Florida, that school floats around um, 1,500, and Castle High in Indiana is like just about to break 2,000. So, as a general rule, it's usually these big 5A and 6A classification bands with around, sorry, not bands, high schools. These high schoolers have around one to 2,000 students enrolled in the school itself that, and these are the schools that really seem to dominate the Grand Nats competition. And that really shouldn't come as a surprise because these bands often have a history of not only stability of funding for the district and for the band itself, but usually a track record of appearing at Grand Nats. So if you look within the decades of Grand Nats finalists, you're going to see a lot of names repeated. And so it's not at all surprising that within the decade, you'd see a lot of these same names because these, these are the schools that have made it in and they're kind of, you know, this is their time to shine.
so we actually managed to get an interview with a director that has some insight and personal experience within the BOA scene. And to put it more simply, we really just wanted to have more insight from people on the ground. Yeah, and I'm actually really excited for this segment. Um, I guess you could say this is kind of our like qualitative research section if we're going to be really technical with it. So yeah, let's get into it. We would try to go to like at least one regional every year, and then we'd go to Grand Nats like every other year. And that was still, like I said, being a band that's close to Grand Nationals. Most bands in Texas that do attend any sort of BOA events, they'll go to you know either the uh, they, I guess they haven't done the Austin Regional maybe for a while. Or I guess, yeah, they do the Austin Regional, I guess. It's kind of early, though. I think that's one of the main reasons why we don't go, we don't even bother going to the Austin Regional is it's so early. It's like September 15th or something that, you know, you're paying all this money to go to a BOA event and, like, basically only your opener is on the field or you're, like, your opener and part of your ballad, which to me doesn't really justify. It's not like you're paying you know, a cheaper amount to go when half of your show is, is done, right? You're paying the same amount whether your show is done or not. So I want to touch on the fact that he mentioned that his band could only go to Grand Nats once every other year, which is a pretty common experience for a lot of um, a lot of competing bands. I've, I've asked around and this is this comes up a lot. And in fact, my um, my best friend and roommate, she's from Bentonville, um, when she was in high school, um, the school district itself could only fund one trip out of state um for the band and for like the color guard who was competing in wgi at the time um they could only fund one out of state trip for both of those organizations once a year and so it was kind of like you had to choose between going to grand nats for the band or wgi for the color guard which like i don't think any band should have to like choose between so being able to not even compete at Grand Nats, even just like going there every year, is not something that every band can do. And I think I, I think it's really good that he mentioned that. Things some booster clubs will provide funds for like, hey, we're gonna pay for the color guard staff. You know, because the band directors are getting, you know, a salary from the school district to be there. The marching techs, and that's another thing too, some band boosters will pay for their marching techs they'll raise a bunch of money to pay for their marching techs so that, you know, the money that the school gives the band for their budget, they can use to buy instruments instead of paying marching techs. We kind of do a combination. We uh, pay for our marching techs and instruments kind of through the band. I really like how he's mentioning that the booster club is acting to like supplement a lot of band fees for people who need it. I think that's a really, really great idea, especially for those low income students who are living in or around middle or upper class areas because they're being expected to pay as much as these students who are more affluent and that's that's a lot harder for them and so programs or even just like initiatives like that where the boosters can kind of like help offset the cost for those low-income students so that they can have like the opportunity to participate is a really really good idea and I I would hope that a lot of band booster programs have that initiative or have that sort of like goal in mind when they're raising ra- raising funds because that that's that's a really important thing that needs to be talked about more. So just based off of this answer alone, it's extremely clear that the booster clubs for really any band program 
they come up with a lot of, if not more than half of the overall band budget. And don't get me wrong, later in the interview, Mr. Patton goes over the funds acquired from the school district, and while that is a very substantial number, the funds raised through the booster club matches that amount fairly well. What he's saying here really interests me because, you know, we've been talking about this whole time, like, it's, you know, this is, like, a part of the budget that the band puts towards BOA, but really, like, we need to be thinking about the band's budget as sort of, like, a pie that you allocate out for, you know, you you spend your money to benefit the band, and if you're using, you know, 90% of your pie just to go to Grand Nats and, like, you know, never mind whether, like, it, you would get a lot out of that or not, you know, think about, think about that. Like, you've only got 10% of your budget left, you know, you could save maybe 5% of that to, you know, buy some new marimbas or, like, get a really nice, you know, new uniform or, like, you know, but 10% of your budget is not a lot to work on. And especially if you want to do, like, you know, clinics for, like, concert band stuff in the spring, I know that's, like, a thing that a lot of bands spend money on, you know, like, um, you, you know, and that's just like, that's just a lot of the budget to be putting towards something that, you know, may not be super worth it for a lot of Texas bands, especially because like, like he's saying, it's such a long distance. So I think, you know, when we're discussing this, we need to think about the budget of the band as kind of like a pie that sometimes Grand Nats takes, like, sometimes you got a really affluent band and it only takes, like, you know, 70% of the budget, and sometimes you've got, you know, a a more, like, average band, like what you're going to see with an average budget, and it's going to take, like, up to 90% of the budget, you know. So a lot of band directors need to kind of come to that conclusion on their own because, because it is so expensive. I want to take a second and talk about this because this is, you know, this is very, this is very crucial stuff. So I really like this concept of bands drawing the money for the budget from multiple sources. So you could have a band that, you know, either through necessity or through the fact that they've just got a really great, they've just got a really great booster program. Most of the money of the budget comes from the boosters in one way or another for one reason or another. And you know, that's great. Some bands do that. Or you've got a band that subsists mostly off of the funding that they get from the district. So you've basically, that that's about a set amount and it's way, way more out of your control and more indicative of, you know, not only the um, affluence or the socioeconomic status of the place you're teaching in, it could also be indicative of just the way that your state funds education. Um, so some bands do that. And then you've kind of got this third option where you're supplementing large portions of the budget through um, member fees, which, you know, is kind of kind of a more controversial option. Um, most bands have some form of, you know, band fees. Um, they, they can range anywhere from like, you know, under 100 to in the hundreds to like through the thousands. And, you know, I've I've heard of all and in between and that's a little bit more controversial because you're kind of shouldering the burden onto students and to to a greater extent the families of the students and that's 
that's not as, you know, that's, that's less equitable, that's less, you know, rather than providing a conduit through which the student and the family can kind of fundraise the money through the, um, through the band and with the band's direction, which, you know, a lot of bands do, but if you just, you know, if you just slap a, slap a fee on a family, like an entry fee, like you, you cannot join band unless you do this, is, has been harshly criticized because it's not very equitable, it's, you know, it's, it's one of the problems that we, um, as people who are trying to make this, make this program and make this, you know, make this cultural part of America and, and education a bit more equitable, you know, it, it's, a, a lot of bands are kind of trending towards trying to stay away from putting the financial burden on the students, and I think that's, that's the way to go. Yeah, let's get right into it. So break down the financial process of designing a show for UIL. Stuff like props, drill, uniforms, um, techs, music even. Like, you just give me a rough estimate for how much a production would usually cost. Um, Mr. Frock would have a better idea of how much, like, everything would cost. Like, and it's, a, it's, a, it's going to depend on every school, but, like, for Austin High, I want to say it's somewhere between like 60 and $70,000, something like that for like everything. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really big, um, it's a really big price tag. So, um, and I just want to clarify that Mr. Patton is talking about using a 60 to $70,000 budget for the band specifically to compete in UIL. So this is like, if you're just going to UIL, which is just a Texas thing, you're just going to be traveling to Texas. That's still like, you know, that that's just just an incredible price tag and it gets even higher you know the more you want to put into GE you know you want to have some more text or maybe you want to have competitive pay for your text you know I, I think a lot of the UNT students um, would know a lot about um, bands that hire you know anywhere from three texts to sometimes eight you know like that's that's a lot of people and so that you know, price tag is just going to get bigger and bigger. Like this would be kind of considered like, you know, the starting level for a BOA production because you have to factor in travel costs, you know, like increased GE, you know, increased, like definitely increased teching because, you know, you're going to need to get that show really, really clean, especially if you want to go to finals. So like 60 to 70,000 is massive. But, like, it's even bigger if you're going to be taking that show to be away. So, I've always been interested in the interplay between successful bands and the finances and demographics that they have, so I did some digging. And within the Journal of Band Research, there's this really awesome article by Emin O'Leary that gives just a lot of context into this matter. And in it, he reveals that the percentage of white performers in Grand Nats finalist bands from 2001 to 2013 ranges anywhere from 46 to 96%, which O'Leary claims is more indicative of a demographic manifestation of the school district itself and not the band. So, basically, these bands have more homogenous demographics, because that's just how the district is. Yeah, and to that point, his article, entitled, get ready, 
Economic and demographic characteristics of schools and communities with Bands of America Grand National Finalists, which is a nice little mouthful for you. Um, it shows that compared to the national average of students who use free reduced lunches, which is around 51%, that these Grand Nats bands hail from schools that only have around 22% of students who qualify for these social programs, which is a pretty stark difference. O'Leary even went in and compared the mean difference in percentage from these schools and the state averages, and that, diffin- and that difference fell around 27%. Yeah, and some just for some clarifying information, students who qualify for free or reduced lunches come from households that are at or below 130% of the federal poverty level. In Texas, a good example would be a house of four people where the total income is around 49000 and this is just a program that about half of American students use. So we're dealing with some very affluent neighborhoods and districts, and is what I'm hearing. Yeah, so to drive that point further, the average median household income for a district with a Grand Nats finalist band is around 42% higher than a state average, which is a very significant finding. Yeah, and I, I mean... I've always kind of felt that rich bands make it to the top, but hearing it spelled out is very significant. It's not just a hunch. Like, these bands have the space to succeed because of booster programs that can yield a lot more because just there's just more money in circulation in these bigger districts. Yeah, um, it is a money thing. Um, and, like, disclaimer, I don't want to negate any sort of pedagogical or, like, effort-driven factors that also play into success at BOA. But if I had to make any sort of educated broad stroke statement, it would be that affluence, sufficient funding, and all these other things that you get from these big bands and researching them, these elements get you through the door. When you get into Grand Nats, it's kind of just a bunch of bands who have a lot of money to work with anyway. A fantastic staff with a slightly smaller budget than other finalists can and often will shock audiences. It's just simply that... A lot of the stuff we've been uncovering is kind of the prerequisite to success on a BOA field. And with that, we have concluded today's episode of Sound Advice. We would like to thank Mr. Richard Patnot for being awesome and allowing us to interview him. And, of course, we have to thank the (laughs) illustrious Free Music Archive for the wonderful royalty-free music that you've been hearing this entire time. Yes! Okay. But in all seriousness, we want to thank you, the audience, for listening to what we have to say regarding the financial commitment to participate in BOA competitions. Until next time. Adios.